this is a bit of an experiment for me. I, I, love, I love the whole idea of Sunday school, but I love the idea of preaching a little bit more. And so I'm trying to combine the two. So um, there is, I was just saying, um, there is a formality to open, opening the Word of God that's really growing in my own heart, that this is something that you don't take lightly. And, and um, as I mentioned last time, the idea of informal worship is really an oxymoron. And it's really a contradiction in terms. Uh, so the, the whole picture we have of, you know, just sitting down and having a, having a coffee with Jesus kind of a thing, uh, that's, that's really not appropriate. Um, and so my intention is to really take the Psalms very, very seriously. And uh, it's been good for my soul, and I believe it will be for yours as well. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at Psalm 1. Our Father, we have so many distractions in this world. We have difficulties foisted upon us by everyone around us, by our, our neighbors, by our, our, our co-workers, even family members at times. We have our own sin nature to deal with. We have the worries and the concerns of this world. We live in a fallen world that is literally trying to kill us at any given time. And we fight for survival and we have to work to have what we have and and all the while watching wicked men all around us make the world worse and worse. And so it is our delight and our joy to stop and to step off of that uh, difficulty and to step into a little piece of heaven as we gather with your people, as we open the revealed will and word of God. I pray that our hearts this Lord's day, by the time we lay our heads on our pillows this evening, Lord, are so filled with thankfulness and gratitude at how you have filled us up with truth and with the delight of worshiping you. We pray these things to the honor of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is easy. Turn to Psalm 1. And I I want to talk to you about two kinds of men today. Two kinds of men and... While you're finding Psalm 1, I think the biggest scam that Satan has foisted on the church of Jesus Christ in the past 50 years, and this is kind of complex to explain it, but I think I can boil this down. The biggest scam is to convince the church, the majority of American and international evangelicalism, to convince the church that the way to reach the lost is to connect with them. And I know that sounds, well, that's obvious. Shouldn't we connect with them? That just tells you how much we've been inculcated into a culture that's actually wrong. That we're to relate to them, we're to be relevant to them. I'm not speaking of just basic friendliness, but this connection, this relation, this relevance is born itself out in various ways, which come down to really to the very core of how we do church, what the church is actually all about. For example, uh, the scam has reached the church at the level of evangelism. That if I can be as much like the lost person as possible, then I can lead them to Jesus. That if I can look like them, if I can act like them, if I can show them just how normal Christians are, as if the lost people are the standard of normal. The scam has reached the church at the level of music worship, and we all understand this, that if the, if the church provides an entertaining emotional experience, which is now uh, touted as being for the attendee, for the guest. And what so many websites call it is a worship experience. 
that it's a product to be consumed, and that now the lost will attend church because they're being entertained. It's reached the church at the level of preaching, that if I can preach non-offensive messages that major on compassion and practical life instruction and minor on truth and minor on the gospel of Christ, then the lost will be coaxed into the kingdom. And that's, that's a term that's actually very common in the church today is coaxing or, or massaging people toward the gospel. That you're slowly moving them there. And, and I understand that people are on a journey of sorts, but it's a journey that must have an endpoint. It, it has to have a goal. Whatever form the scam takes, the scam believes that the church's job is to coax and massage people toward the gospel. That you never step on the feelings of the lost. That you, you, you tell everyone, hey, we're all on our own journey, whatever that is. And, and we, we don't emphasize truth. We don't even open the Bible. There are churches in America today that say we shouldn't open our Bibles unless it's to somebody who really wants us to open the Bible. And that's just the opposite of how it ought to be. And, and so the philosophy is you help people move very slowly, imperceptibly, toward the truth, and at some indefinable moment, they'll cross over into saving faith. But the reality is there'll be no lifestyle change. There'll be no difference in their life because you spent so long convincing them that they're normal already instead of that they're out of step with the truth. And then, then you, you have this philosophy that says, Jesus makes no demands of you. He just wants your heart, which is actually a, a very heretical idea. But all of that is like sending someone with cancer to a massage therapist. We'll just massage the cancer out of them and we'll just make them feel good. Well, I love Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 takes that whole philosophy and just flushes it down the drain. Psalm 1 is the guardian over all the Psalms and it sets forth a very clear message which instructs God's people and those who are not God's people. It gives a clear contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And it is extremely black and white. There's no massaging, there's no coaxing, there's no journey here. So this is what Psalm 1 does. It is the guardian. And I'm going to read Psalm 1 and then show you the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Now, in line with the scam I just outlined for you, conventional wisdom concerning Psalm 1 says that Psalm 1 has many good lessons for the person who is seeking God. And we're going to get into some, some dicey waters here because this is how this is almost always preached. And I'm going to show you that perhaps we could think of it slightly differently. But the basic premise, generally you hear from Psalm 1, even from many uh, theologians, is something like this. You will receive a blessing from God if you move slowly toward God by doing certain things. 
And so Psalm 1 is taught as a, as, as a list of things to do. And, and it's, it's somewhat reasonable. Uh, in fact, I came up with a teaching outline that if I were going to teach this psalm from this angle, it would go something like this. I, I would call this the reasons and the results of God's blessing. Reasons, I could divide that into two, wisdom and the word. Wisdom would say that if you're careful to not associate too closely with the world, if you're careful to not associate with its system of life, then you're moving toward God. And the other reason, the word. If you're starting to spend time in the Bible, then you're moving slowly toward God. You're getting to know him better as your friend and as your helper. So those are reasons that there's blessings from God if you do certain things. And then there's results. And I could divide the results into two also. Strength and success. That you'll receive strength. That the psalmist gives the metaphor of this tree planted by a river. That it's leafy and fruitful. There's, there's no spiritually dry times. It's a life useful to God. And not only do you get strength, but you get success. In whatever he does, he prospers. That might not mean wealth. It might not mean getting all that you want. But there's a richness in his daily life. There's a depth of spiritual joy to him. So we could summarize that the the blessing of God resides on the person who walks in wisdom, in the word, resulting in spiritual strength and success. Those are good lessons. They're generally true. But is that what Psalm 1 is about? Well, this is a poem. And a poem has, in Hebrew, has parallelism. It has comparison and contrast. That sermon, I just gave you the little miniature version, can only be preached from the first three verses. You must ignore the last three. Because if we have the parallelism, the comparison and the contrast, if the lesson of Psalm 1, 1 through 3, is that the blessing of God resides on a person who walks in wisdom and in the word, resulting in spiritual strength and success, then we should expect the contrast to be that someone who doesn't walk in wisdom, someone who doesn't walk in the word, will have a life of spiritual weakness and failure. That, that you're comparing a person who lives a, a wonderful Christian life and a person who doesn't live such a wonderful Christian life. And so now it's, it's directed at two types of Christians. Is that what Psalm 1 is about? It's not. Because that comparison gets blown out of the water. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This isn't talking about someone who lives a life without wisdom, a life without the word. It's not talking about someone who is now weak and failing. This jumps ahead to an eternal scene of damnation and judgment. This is not talking about how someone lives their life. This is talking about someone after their death. And so that comparison breaks down really hard and really fast. So we're not talking about comparisons of people who live by the scriptures and those who don't. We're talking about a comparison of those who will not face God's eternal wrath and those who will. Much more black and white. This is, this is not a, a how to live the Christian life lesson. This is a you must be a Christian lesson. Now, I think the lessons to us as believers in in verses 1 through 3 are useful, and I understand that. The pragmatic approach of spend time in your Bible and God will bless you, that is a good application. That is not the interpretation. And so we want to stick with the correct interpretation. Because verses 1 through 3, 
These verses aren't a description of a person who's slowly trying to, as one church website says, take, take the next step in your relationship with God. That's not what verses 1 through 3 are about. It's a description of a truly saved person contrasted with a truly lost person. Very black and white, very clear. And instead of picturing a relationship with God as some sort of journey or a spectrum, it's sharply distinguished. Either you're of God or you're not. Those in right relationship with God are headed toward eternal joy. Those in wrong relationship with God are headed toward eternal judgment. Those are the two choices, eternal joy, eternal judgment. And so Psalm 1 shows the contrast between the godly, those in right relationship with God, and the ungodly, those who have refused to worship God. You see why Psalm 1 is the guardian of all the Psalms? It it says, before you go on to the next one, you'd better know where you stand. Because the Psalms are not just a a little book of feel-good hymns to make anybody on earth feel wonderful. They are for the saved. And so we're going to stick with the outline of Psalm 1 that I think the text demands. Characteristics of the godly and characteristics of the ungodly. So let's start with the characteristics of the godly. We'll just put together a list. The first characteristic, he hates sin. He hates sin. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is an important word. The wicked is a word that means specifically those who are still guilty, that they are still under guilt, that he does not heed the counsel of those still guilty before God, that the godly person doesn't desire to follow the course of the world. Then why would I take any wisdom from someone who doesn't know God? I have no desire to do that whatsoever. It's unwise. It's ungodly. And now he's countercultural. If his neighbor is cheating to get ahead in his business, the Christian is on his knees asking God to bless his integrity. Then if his neighbor is saturating himself in sexual sin, the Christian is pursuing purity and holiness before God. He doesn't stand in the way of the sinners, the path or the road. This word for sinner means one who bears the blame for his actions. So not only is he judicially guilty, he is also still bearing the blame. He's still also to blame, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, the the poetic parallelism here is very instructive to us. See if you can follow this. The wicked, those who are guilty and have not sought God's forgiveness for sin, are the same as the sinners, the blame bearers. They still bear the blame. They're the same as the scoffers. Literally means those who mock God. Now, someone might say, well, I, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I don't mock God. Well, Scripture is very clear. By defining the same person who is still guilty before God as the same person who is still the blame bearer before God as the same person who is a scoffer of God, then the one who has not repented of his sin is a mocker of God. He does mock God. He's, a, he's guilty. He's a blame bearer. He's a mocker. There's a second characteristic of the saved person. One, he hates sin. Secondly, He walks with God. He walks with God. If the saved person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, then by process of elimination, he does walk in the counsel of God. Those are the only two choices. Now, you know this metaphor. The metaphor of walking with God is very rich in Scripture. And you think about this, to an ancient culture that walked everywhere. If the Bible had been written in our time, it might have been who drives with God. I don't know what that would be. 
But this is the idea of a good pathway, a good road. And listen, in the ancient Near East, a good and safe path was a big deal. And everybody knew which ones were safe and everybody knew which ones to avoid. But this is all over the Bible. The ancient preacher of righteousness, Enoch, Genesis 5.22 says, Enoch walked with God. Genesis 6.9, Noah was a righteous man. Noah walked with God. God's requirement of Israel in Deuteronomy 10.12 to walk in all his ways. King Solomon prayed a public prayer of dedication of the magnificent new temple. And he prayed in 2 Chronicles 6.14, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and loving kindness to your slaves who walk before you with all their heart. Ephesians 4.1, you, you get more familiar as we get to the New Testament. Therefore, I urge you, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling. Colossians 1.10, Paul says that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 2.6, that as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is all through Scripture. And if we had time, we could go through the, the, the entirety of this theme. It goes all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have, you have the kings of the earth walking to Jerusalem to present their offerings to the Lord. So this is, this is huge. Now, why do we make a big deal of this? To say that there is a class of believer who does not walk with God in a deep yearning desire to obey him, simply isn't found in Scripture. There is not a class of Christian that does not walk with God. Yes, we're exhorted to walk better, but every Christian walks with God at one level or another. There's no such thing, to put it this way, as a carnal Christian. The Christian that says, well, I'm saved, but I, I live my life completely the same as I always have. That person does not exist. He hates sin, he walks with God. Here's a third characteristic of the, of the godly. He loves the scriptures. He loves the scriptures. Verse 2 says that his delight is in the law of Yahweh. This is an interesting word. It means, it's a word that means it's his business. It's his joyful business. It's his delightful business. It's something that he makes his business. And I cannot be clear enough about this. This is not some Christians. All Christians love the word of God. All Christians yearn for the word of God. They, they delight in the word. And you know this, if you've been here any amount of time, the law of Yahweh that he's speaking of here to the original reader, this is the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, he commanded Israel, now it will be if you diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I am commanding you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. What's the key? Diligently. It's a word that means to hear and obey. Uh, you, some of you may know the Hebrew word, uh, shema. It is to hear and to listen and to inculcate and to yearn and to obey. It's a, it's a deep, weighty word. This is not just external obedience. This is not uh, legalism where we say, well, if I make enough sets of rules, then that's me living the Christian life. No, it's a yearning to have internal obedience, not just external religiosity. God hates that, by the way. It's a demonstrated love for God. By the way, love for God is defined exactly the same way in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Did you know that? 
Old Testament, Deuteronomy 11.13, it will be that if you listen obediently to my commands, which I am commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. That's Old Testament. What's the New Testament say? 1 John 5.2, by this we know we we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments. The love for God is proven by obedience. Now, are we under the Old Testament law? No, we're not. But we are under the law of Christ. There's no such thing as a believer in God in any era, not under law. We always have a law, and it's the way we show our love to him. And the psalmist explains what this looks like. What, what's the outworking of this love for the scriptures? Is it just is it having a Bible up on a shelf and, and you dust it off every once in a while and say, boy, I love that Bible. My great-grandmother gave that to me. Is it a theoretical love of the word? Is it liking to listen to people talk about the Bible? No, here's the outworking. In his law, he meditates day and night. To meditate means to mutter something under your breath, to murmur it, that you're, you're thinking about it. You read the word and, and a verse sticks in your mind that perhaps you read uh, this, this phrase, his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And the rest of the day, you're thinking, how can I delight in the law? Where is my delight? And you're, you're thinking on this. You're, you're reading about it. You're praying about it. You're pondering it. And it's not something so much as a, it's not, it's not a command It's not an admonition. It's just something that happens. Now, obviously, it takes some discipline to decide to be better at meditating on the word. But it's not so much something you ought to do. It's something you can't stop doing. That when the word of God gets a hold of you, it's just there and and you're, you're thinking about it all the time. So the believer, the godly, hates sin. He walks with God. He loves the scriptures. There's a fourth characteristic. He enjoys assurances in faith. He enjoys assurances in faith. Verse three, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Now just a little note here. He will be like, in Hebrew, this is a a grammatical explosion of getting your attention. It's what's called a sequential verb, the, the foregone conclusion of what has just been previously stated, that this is what's going to happen, that if you delight in the law of God and in, in his law he meditates day and night, this is the foregone conclusion. He will be like that tree firmly planted. It's also a perfect verb. It means it's something that's definite. It's something that has consequences forever, consequences that keep going. And so the saved person will definitely be assured these are the things that will absolutely happen. And let me give you three of them, three assurances. The first assurance, he has assurance of salvation. He has assurance of salvation. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. I I want to go a little bit deeper than our English Bibles allow us to here. The King James Version translates this rivers of water. We get streams of water here but the specific word that's used here in Hebrew never refers to a natural, naturally occurring river or stream. It's always an, a ditch that a human being dug. It's, a, it's an irrigation ditch. It's artificial. It's an artificial water channel that turns a, a desert into an oasis. And this is a, a favorite mode of irrigation in ancient Middle East countries. Um, canals were dug in every direction 
going from a water source, and this carried water everywhere. And ancient Egypt is probably the most famous for this, using these, these uh, channels that were so complex. Some gardens were so well watered that literally every tree had a little channel going to it. No sprinkler systems, but just people with shovels watering everything with these, with these ditches. And, and you think about this. The person with the shovel has all the power. If there's a hundred trees and he doesn't like tree number 37, he's just not going to dig a ditch to it. And tree number 37 dies. This is so important. This is not a picture of an existing river and somebody comes and plants a tree by it. That's, it's the opposite of that. This is a tree already planted in the desert that's dying and somebody digs a ditch to it to bring water to it. You see the difference? Traditionally, the the streams of water are often interpreted to be the word of God. I don't think that's the best way to understand streams of water or these water channels. There's a tree that's you. You're helplessly and hopelessly planted in a waterless land, which is your own sin. What's going to happen? That tree is going to die. You will die. But someone, a loving God in heaven, has dug a water channel to you. What did Jesus call himself in John Four, he called himself the purveyor of living waters. That he is the one who brings that water. You are the tree planted in the desert, dying from day one, but God dug a canal called the cross and he filled that canal with living water. I think that's a better way to understand streams of water. So the first assurance, you have assurance of salvation. Why why can you have assurance of salvation? Because you didn't dig the canal. You didn't dig it. There's a second assurance. He has assurance of Christ's likeness. Assurance of Christ's likeness. This tree yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. The water of life brings nutrients from the source. What's the source? Probably a better question. Who is the spiritual source of nutrients? That is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings Christ's likeness so that as the believer continues to be nourished in the word of God and abiding in the living water of Christ, he bears fruit. And, and, and it's not something that you, you have to try to squeeze out, so to speak. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these things become more and more characteristic of you. And these are, in fact, a test of salvation. That if those things are, are less characteristic of you than they were five years ago, you ought to be very afraid. You ought to be very careful. Not only that, his life will be a gospel witness to the dying trees around him. Look at how my life has changed. And you can tell tree number 36 and tree number 38. God can dig a water channel to you as well. The cross of Christ can bring you living water of forgiveness and salvation. We're assured that the process of Christ's likeness will be completed. And that's a great comfort to me. I think it is to you as well. 1 John 3, 2 says that we will be like him, like Christ, because we'll see him just as he is. That the mechanism, the means by which your sanctification is complete is literally to view Christ person to person, face to face. That will comp- What a glorious moment that's going to be. First assurance, assurance of salvation. Second assurance, assurance of Christ's likeness. Here's a third assurance. He has assurance of eternal life. He has assurance of eternal life. In whatever he does, he prospers. 
We can affirm the clear principle that the Christian is blessed far beyond all creatures. We understand that. I I think it's very healthy to end every day uh, thanking the Lord for everything he brought. And I think it is a reasonable prayer to say, Lord, I believe that every day of my life I will be able to count blessings for you. That, That is very reasonable. But this isn't a promise that necessarily everything you touch is going to turn to gold or everything is going to be all wonderful and delightful. What this really is, is an assurance of ultimate victory. And whatever he does, he prospers. It's a word that means he cuts through, he triumphs, that the end will be a good ending. I think there are plenty of Christians throughout history that have looked back on their life and maybe from a human standpoint said, what was that? I don't understand. I don't get it. A life filled with suffering, a life filled with nothing but pain, a life filled with failure. And yet if they're in Christ, they cut through. They have victory. They have triumph. It's the idea of advancing forward. It's a secured future that the future is bright no matter what is happening right now. I I think that um, the older I get, the more delightful it is to think about the fact that I'm I'm, uh, past the halfway mark. That's exciting to me. Because I know my Christ-likeness is way closer than my salvation was 40, 50 years ago. And so that, that should be very exciting. All these assurances of ours. And so the godly, he hates sin. He walks with God. He loves the scriptures. He enjoys assurances in faith. That's nothing like the world, is it? That's nothing like the world. And the contrast is very clear here. Verse 4 The wicked are not so. The ungodly also have characteristics. We've already seen some of them in verse 1. First characteristic, they're wicked. They're wicked. They're guilty. They're unrighteous. Now, you know that all of us fell into that category at the beginning of our lives, right? Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous. No, not one. But then Psalm 1 takes it a step further regarding this, uh, this guilt, First, they're wicked, but second, they're sinners. They're guilt bearers. It means that they're still bearing the guilt for their own sin. They're still responsible. Jesus told the religious fakes of his day in John 8, 31, 21 rather, you will die in your sin. Now, why could he say that with such assurance? Because he knew as the son of God that they were never going to ask for mercy. They were never going to beg for the grace of God. They were never going to ask Jesus Christ to impute his righteousness to them. They would remain self-righteous to their dying breath. And so he decreed, you will die in your sin. And in fact, worse, he says, where I am going, you cannot come. You're going to be somewhere else. They're wicked, they're sinners. Third characteristic, they're scoffers. They're mockers of God. Now, this may, be not, may not be someone who's openly shaking his fist at God. Maybe he thinks he's actually really interested in God. We, we have mockers that come to our church on occasion. They're interested in God. He might even say, I, I haven't done anything that bad. That's the same problem the Pharisees had. You can't be forgiven if you don't think you have anything to be forgiven of. And so that makes you a scoffer. He's secure in himself. I, I'm an okay person. 
God says in Psalm 7:12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and has prepared it. This is a, a picture of an ancient bow straining to be released. Uh, ancient bows, if you had a really good one, it had little tips on the end made of brass. And those brass tips meant you could pull that thing even harder and the wood wouldn't splinter. So it's this idea of a bow bent backwards like a leather C just being squished and pulled and God's just holding it and, it, and it's shaking, it's quivering, it's, it's yearning to let that arrow of judgment go. To exonerate yourself is to scoff at God, to mock God. I've heard this before. I've looked in my own heart and I don't see any sin. You're the very last person who should be looking in your own heart. Even the Apostle Paul says that I have looked in my own heart, but even that doesn't, that doesn't equip me because God is the judge. When someone says, well, I've looked in my own heart, well, of course you have. You've looked with rose-colored glasses and you've given yourself excuses. And because of this willful arrogance, catastrophes coming to the unrepentant, to the ungodly, in verses 4 through 6, there's three parallel statements that all say the same thing. The wicked are not so, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Second parallel statement. The wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And the third parallel statement, the way the wicked will perish, into verse 6. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff starts off connected to the grain. It looks like it, it feels like it, you cannot tell a difference. But in the process of threshing and winnowing, beating the grain to separate the chaff, then tossing it in the, air, in the air with the winnowing fork so that the chaff blows away, the grain stays together and it gathers together. It's the real thing. The chaff comes off and is separated. And I think this is a, a great illustration here because just like God provides water, the living water, to those who would come to him by faith, he also provides wind to blow the chaff away. The wind of judgment. John the Baptist warned of this. Who's the one who will judge? It is Christ. The one that you ought to have had faith in will be your judge if you won't have faith in them. John the Baptist said this of Jesus in Matthew 3. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The saved one is like a tree planted by living water, but the unsaved will dry up. They're exposed to the wrath of God. The wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Oh, I love this. Verse six, Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. You know how Jesus said it? He said it like this, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. They follow me. We enjoy the imputed, the credited righteousness of Christ. And because of that, he knows his. But the way, the path, the self-righteousness of the wicked will perish. By the way, there's an inherent warning here. And I think it's a good counsel to the unbeliever. In verse 2, look at the progression of the one who rejects God. First, he walks in the counsel of the wicked. This is the idea of considering options and beginning to choose self-confidence rather than seeking God. Then I'm playing with sin. I'm, I'm kind of looking at what the world has to offer. This is the, this is the, the 15, 16, 17-year-old who's, who's fighting against coming to Christ and, and really liking the things of the world. And I kind of want this. 
but he's just walking. But then there's a progression. Second, he stands in the way of sinners. This is slowing down. This is not just walking with the sinners. It's slowing down to hang out with them and to hang out with the world system. This is beginning to get enamored with my own goodness, with my own self-righteousness. And this is when you, you see to our, our, our just grief, you see in the lost person them beginning to settle in to a belief in their own goodness. Now they're not just walking with the unrighteous. Now they're standing with them. And then finally, he sits in the seat of scoffers. Now he takes a seat. Now he's right at home. He makes a conscious choice to rebel, a conscious choice to reject God. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 warns against this. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. You know, the structure of the psalm even makes the contrast between the saved and the unsaved clear, that the black and white nature. In the Hebrew text, the first word is blessed and the last word is wicked. That's the contrast. By the way, or the last word rather is perish. The wicked will perish. And it's an imperfect verb. It means that he will perish repeatedly or continually. There's no annihilation. Even Psalm 1 decries and goes against the idea of annihilationism. No, the wicked will suffer under God's wrath forever. So Psalm 1 is the guardian of the rest of the Psalms and it has a very, very specific lesson. And that lesson is that being right with God is not a journey. It's not a spectrum. We're not to fall for that scam. And we have to be accurate with that. Being right with God is to be repentant of sin, horrified at your self-righteousness, and eager for the mercy of God. Jesus gave what I think could be a really a illustration and narration of Psalm 1, the two types of men. Here they are. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is Psalm 1. Let's pray together. Our Father, you could not be clearer. It is a perfect poem with two sides. A man who yearns for you, delights in you, is so thankful for the grace that dug the water channel of life to the dying tree of his life. And then the man who settles into his sin First, considering, and then stopping to savor it, and then sitting in the seat of scoffers to be the worst of the worst, to join ranks with those who would rebel against God, to join ranks with those who would have shouted, crucify him. So Lord, I pray that for us,
we would remember, first of all, like 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us to test ourselves, examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And secondly, Lord, to be encouraged that the person who is righteous before you did not do this themselves, that the Holy Spirit regenerated and blew. And and because of that power that is available in salvation, we can pray with great confidence for the lost. I pray that our evangelism, Lord, is saturated in prayer and saturated in the honesty of the fact that there is no journey toward the cross. Either you're in Christ or you're in sin. And there is no in-between. I pray that our knowledge of Psalm 1 would bolster our own faith and lead us to be better disciples, better witnesses for you in this world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.